Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Bin Don. Radius Books has just published a two-volume monograph titled Bin Don, The Enigma of Belonging. The book, Don's first monograph, brings together Don's prints on plant matter that consider images associated with the war in Vietnam and Don's daguerreotypes of scenic vistas in the American West, his attempt to negotiate the land and history of a still-contested region. Bookshop and Amazon offer it for about $60. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Don's work is also on view now in Ansel Adams in Our Time at the DeYoung Museum in San Francisco. The exhibition, which was curated by Karen Haas for the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, is on view through July 23rd. Don has had solo shows at museums such as the Cantor Arts Center at Stanford University, the North Carolina Museum of Art in Raleigh, and the Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska. His work is in many major U.S. museum collections, including those of the Eastman House in Rochester, New York, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, the Harvard Art Museums, and the Huntington Library in San Marino. On the second segment, Object Lessons in American Art, Selections from the Princeton University Art Museum at the Georgia Museum of Art. But first, Bin Don, after the break. Closing on April 23rd, don't miss Forecast Form, Art in the Caribbean Diaspora, 1990s to Today, at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. Named a must-see show by Art Forum, Forecast Form uses the concept of weather and its constantly changing forms as a metaphor to analyze artistic practices connected to the Caribbean, understanding the region as a bellwether for our rapidly shifting times. Plan your visit to see Forecast Form, Art in the Caribbean Diaspora, 1990s to Today, by going to mcachicago.org. On view through July 16th, 2023, at the Getty Center, the bold new exhibition, Barbara T. Smith, The Way to Be, explores concepts that strike at the core of human nature, including sexuality, technology, and death. Since the 1960s, Smith has been at the forefront of artistic movements in California. Her work has taken various forms, including painting, drawing, installation, video, performance, and artists' books, and often involves her own body as a vehicle for her art. This autobiographical exhibition is Smith's first major museum show and explores the artist's first 50 years, which were marked by dramatic upheavals in her personal life, as well as the development of her most pioneering works, including her Xerox art and radical early performances. Getty also published Smith's memoir to accompany the show, and the exhibition includes an audio tour narrated by the artist. Plan your visit and book free advanced reservations today at getty.edu. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation. Presenting Fay Heavy Shield Confluences, curated by Tamara Schenkenberg, on view now through August 6th. Confluences features a selection of Fay Heavy Shield's drawings and sculptures from the 1980s to the present, alongside two commissions responding to landscapes and histories of the greater St. Louis area. During a career that spans more than 30 years, Heavy Shield's work draws upon her family histories, traditional Gaina stories, language, and knowledge, as well as childhood experiences in the residential school system. The spare power of the prairie landscape of her home community informs Heavy Shield's poetic, often minimal aesthetic vocabulary and use of humble materials. Check out the exhibition on the Pulitzer's digital guide through Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. This digital guide takes you behind the scenes at the Pulitzer with exclusive multimedia perspectives from artists, curators, and more. Use the app to plan your visit, then easily access helpful insights on site. Afterward, dive deeper into your favorite works at home or anywhere, anytime. 
for more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Ben Don, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Well, thank you, Tyler. One of the things that distinguishes your practice is that you, more often than not, do not make pictures the way 21st century photographers typically make and print pictures. We'll talk about that as we as we go along. Why does it matter to you how you make a picture and what you print that picture on? I think it really just started in when I was in college. I I got really into alternative processes and the idea that the medium you're working with should also reflect the concept of the work. So that's always been something that I, I try to carry throughout throughout my work. Among the ways you have made pictures is by photosynthetically printing them on leaves and in grass. And of course, you've made a lot of daguerreotypes. I think we're going to talk about all that in a minute. But before we do, I couldn't help but wonder if you've tried using ways of making pictures or printing pictures that ended up not working. <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah, you know, there's been a lot and a lot I still want to explore. For example, I have this idea of always want to print photographic image onto silverwares and especially silver platters, maybe from colonial time. That's all that's been always on my mind since I have thought of that idea 20 so years ago. But it's still something I want to return to. I don't know, maybe Maybe this summer might be a best time to explore that. There's always many 19th century processes to explore and try. And a lot of these um, recipes are, are available for, for, for people to, to, to go at it. But cold fruit printing and the daguerreotype has been sort of my, uh, I would say my bread and butter. <laughs> <laughs> for over 20 years, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I don't make cold fruit prints these days, but... Uh, the daguerreotype has been really serving me well, just conceptually, and also the ability just to go out and photograph. With my chlorophyll print work, it was more, more about appropriation of looking at imageries from a particular time period and using those in, in the, the printing process. The chlorophyll prints date back to at least 2002 and maybe earlier. Could you quickly describe what they are and how you experimented, if that's the right word, to make that thing work? Yeah, so this process is pretty simple. And what I do is I take a transparency, so it's a positive image, so a, a, in contact printout on a leaf or some sort of plant that I just pluck, and I expose that in the sun in a contact printing frame. And through several hours sitting in the sun and sometimes days, the sun bleached out the chlorophyll in the pigment of the leaf. Afterward, the leaf is dry, and then I cast the leaf in resin to, to pretty much preserve it. I like to say I preserve it like a scientific specimen. And that surprisingly, I actually discover further investigation that the process of bleaching out plant pigment kind of dated back to Sir John Herschel with the, uh, the antotype process. And of course, in the 19th century, there was uh, other experimentation, for example, printing on 
peaches and fruits using um, a stencil. So it's a very, I mean, I, I say I kind of developed this process, but it really goes back to actually just even looking at how organically photographic process was invented in, in, in the 19th century. If there is one constant in photography since the 19th century, it is that photo nerds often care mostly about how a picture was made and, and, and less about its content. I mean, you know, the old camera photographer cliche is, you know, what do you shoot with? And so I don't want to go down that road. <laughs> but I do want to ask whether you came to that way of making printed objects because you were motivated by finding a way to print or is it that you were looking for a marriage of content and subject with how to present that content and subject? Yeah, it's actually the latter. I sort of work with the idea first and the idea of printing imageries of the Vietnam War on, onto leaf started when I returned from Vietnam on my first trip in 1999. And I was just standing in my mother's garden in San Jose and was just thinking about a project to uh, to work on a, for my thesis project as a BFA student. And I was just looking at the leaves and it just occurred to me, you know, is it possible to put an image on the leaf? You know, a leaf I learned when I was a kid is also light sensitive. And even as a kid, I noticed that leaving lawn tools on the grass will, will cause the grass to change color. So I think it was also being in tune with my own memories as a child of nature, and then my curiosity almost as a scientist to just explore and experiment with photographic processes. And that sort of just came together. And then this project called Immortality, the Remnants of the Vietnam and America, American War came to being. You mentioned a childhood interest in nature and childhood memories of nature and, and how they, they motivated your investigation of the process you, you used in your work. What are those childhood memories? What, what are, are they of Vietnam? Are they of islands or are they in the United States? Well, they're, they're both. I think a lot of it starting off was with imageries of the Vietnam War. And they were, you know, growing up as a Vietnamese American, just trying to understand that history that wasn't taught to me by my parents, but just through Hollywood movies and, of course, the many documentations and encyclopedia entries about the Vietnam War, just trying to understand this history and how it relates to my life. So starting off with just the Hollywood movies, just like as a kid, you know, sitting in my family TV repair shop to pass the time, I would just be watching these movies and, you know, they were violent and, you know, my parents didn't mind because they quite didn't understand it themselves. And it wasn't something they were in, also interested in watching, but, you know, the movies came through the TVs and it was like this violent on the landscape and this always sort of like war and landscape was so connected to my understanding of, of nature and land. So it was that sort of uh, upbringing that I carried through in, in this body of work. And then at the same time that I was watching movies about the Vietnam War, I also came across photographs of the national parks through... Yeah, the United States National Park. The, yeah, the United States National Park 
through imagery that came through the mails, printed material. Before we pivot to the national parks and, and the work you've made in them, I, w- I want to sit in Vietnam for a moment longer. You mentioned that 1999 trip. I think when you were there, you made a series of silver gelatin prints, several of which, maybe almost all of which, show nature in Vietnam. Why was nature the thing you chose to photograph when you were there in 99? Well, I was very f- interested in, in landscape photography, and I also wanted to connect with Vietnam as a land rather than a, a war. So I was, and it was, again, I tr- it was my first time there. I went by myself. I thought I was going to have this welcome home kind of a feeling and it kind of left me more confused about my identity as a, as a Vietnamese American and maybe the uh, that's really that's where probably where the identity comes from together the Vietnamese American part and I wanted to, to see the the country and the landscape and 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 put away those imageries of war but then of course the war was always there in the landscape is is hinted within the remnants of the war. And growing up in, you know, United States, the the question of Vietnam as a land was always sort of political. And when I was a a kid taking Vietnamese Vietnamese language classes on Sunday, the teacher would tell us that, you know, United States is temporary. We're not, we're not planning to stay here this long. We're going to, we're going to fight and bring back, you know, the freedom of South Vietnam kind of kind of thing. And and as a kid, I, I just was confused because I didn't understand why it would want anybody want to go back to Vietnam, seeing these horrific images of war and devastation. It was not something I wanted to do to to leave the United States. So I didn't I didn't leave until, you know, 1999 in my 20s. One of those 1999 pictures shows a forest clearing and a path kind of leading into the forest and in the foreground and actually really extending into the forest itself are pictures of are, are what looked like burned out tree stumps. I guess first, do you know the picture I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. Actually, I'm just imagining it right now. So I've been to Vietnam and I certainly understand that the memory of the war lives in the land and in the forests. I mean, you see it as you travel around Vietnam. Is this picture an example of how, or how is this picture an example of how you both wanted to discover the land for yourself, but, but maybe the remnants of war were present within it? Yeah, that picture, I think is very more subtle than some of the other photographs of like the war remnants museum and things like that. I think that picture was more about a forest and a pathway leading into that mystery of that place for me. So I think the mystery is pretty much what I'm trying to figure out in that photographic trip. The, I know that when I see, and maybe, maybe it's because I've spent so much of my adult life at this point working on Yosemite, but when I see burnt out tree stumps, I think about how that happened. Um, and when I see so many in one picture, um, I assume there was a single cataclysmic event. And so that picture, for me, just kind of reminds me of how memory lives in land. Yeah, and also for me, too, where the landscape sort of absorbed the war. And this is, you know, this is where I was 
this is the stuff I was thinking about in the Corfield print, is how even though you know, the, the history is, I think, is still sort of recent in ways. It's probably 40 or 50 years from now since the end of the war. But the war started in the 1960s, so it, it ran for like 15 years or so. So the land will consume that history back into its material self, I guess. But it will always be there kind of way. And it's there in like, of course, Asian orange, a herbicide that was used during the Vietnam War to clear out the jungle. And, and you know, we, we all see pictures of kids born w- with missing limbs and deform, deformity on their bodies. And when I saw pictures like that in the United States, I was, again, very disturbed. And I asked my mom, like, you know, well, what are, what's wrong with these, these people, with these kids? And, and she said they have the orange disease, which means, you know, orange as an Asian orange. And again, it's just this element of dioxin that sort of just changed the ecology of that land. And when I saw these pictures, I was thinking about like, wow, these, these people are, are born with the war inside of them. Like they, they came back from war with, with missing limbs, but then the actuality, it's just the war is still in the landscape through, you know, the material of the war itself. I think Americanists think about how nature is a carrier of memory and historical events within a very specific kind of 1830s European Romantic United States extended tradition. And it sounds to me like you're saying that you're a little bit interested in that idea, but that you're primary engagement with the idea of nature as a carrier of memory and historical events comes from a much more specific and recent place. Yeah, that is correct. I, I mean, it, it comes from my sort of experience as an, as an Asian American, you know, living in this country. So I'm obviously attracted to those photographs of, of Yosemite valleys from, from the 19th century and, of course, those from the 20th century. But I also, as a photographer and an artist, want to get beyond that, too, and thinking about you know, the meaning of this, these places. A little bit earlier, you mentioned your series, Immortality, the remnants of the Vietnam and American War, and how you'd made a number of works that addressed that war on, on plants, on leaves, on grasses, and the like. This is a spectacularly prosaic question, but how did you decide what would end up on those leaves? I mean, some of the things are are fighter jets going overhead, people, camouflage designs. How did you come to decide what the images you were going to use would be? Yeah, there there was. I mean, I I titled the series Immortality, The Remnants of the Vietnam and American War. And I think the American War part of it is it's it perplexed people because, you know, here we call it the Vietnam War, while in Vietnam they call it the American War. So they sort of like flipped that around. And I wanted to actually just to see all sides of the war, both the Americans' involvement, the North Vietnam as a separate country, South Vietnam as a separate country, the civilians who were sort of caught between those crossfires. And I wanted to sort of, through these photographs of the uh, 
the 60s, I wanted to, just thinking about every position as possible. And of course, it's it's not possible to, but I, I, I try, you know, try my best to sort of represent all those who were involved within that landscape. And of course, growing up in the United States, watching Vietnam War movie, you know, we tend to see the Americans as the hero in ways. And, and that sort of, you know, that grows on you too. And and you're thinking about, well, you know, yeah, I mean, of course, in this country, we focus a lot on, on American suffering, right? We have the Vietnam Memorial. You know, one of the series that is printed in the book are also photographs from a, a Life magazine called One Faces of the American Dead in Vietnam, One Week's Toll. So I was also, you know, considering the stories as an American, the stories of those Americans who who were who fought in the war and, and lost their lives. So yeah, I, I wanted more complexity within the work and those faces and scenes that I appropriated. What pulled them all together is the issue of, of death, you know, the issue of that, yeah, this is war, it's brutality and it, and it results in and death, you know, there's nothing, nothing coming out of war. There's no creation in a war as, as, as we think about it. It's all about devastation. I think one of the really interesting things about the new two book set from Radius is that you share with us how much you've, you've really kind of nerded out on how important photography was to the world's understanding of what was happening in Vietnam and also I guess, in a different way in Cambodia. And you include within the book not just examples of photojournalism made during the war, but the captions and, I don't know, administrative processing materials of of how those images ended up in in global media. It got me wondering if... (laughs) If one of the things you grappled with was how to overcome this profusion of mostly black and white, but not entirely black and white images that Americans, especially Americans of of a certain age, just grew up with for a decade and and having to find a way around the dominance of those images. Yeah, well, I I was, you know, thinking about how image circulate throughout culture and society and you know, when the images were produced and printed and disseminated in, in the 60s, you know, I don't know how much people at that time were thinking about us in the, the 21st century in 2023, right? But uh, I was very fascinated with the material culture of that time period. So to investigate further, I started just collecting anything that I found on auction sites or flea markets or antique shops that related to the Vietnam War because I, I wanted to touch and hold this material thinking about its elemental quality and that exists through you know time and space for me to have it in my studio. So it's a way for me to sort of connect with that time period is sort of just collect and, and save these in a way you know, like any institution or archive is willing to save cultural materials. In about 2010, you made a series of chlorophyll prints called Military Foliage, pictures that featured camouflage of various sorts printed on to into chlorophyll prints. Why did camouflage interest you and what 
were you eager to do by mashing up camouflage and the stuff that camouflage was supposed to work against, if you will? Well, growing up, you know, watching Vietnam War movies, you know, the camouflage uniforms were so ubiquitous in these these scenes here. And, you know, whenever we see camouflage, I think even in our everyday life of just through designs and and fashion, you know, it's still military for me. And I was just fascinated with, with that patterns that's on clothing. So I wanted to see, you know, what what happened if we invert that and put the camouflage back onto the, the, the leaves themselves. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, what if there was no end to war? Would camouflage, will plants actually take on the camouflage patterns of the war as an evolving into military design to, to sort of protect protect themselves? And so since, like, I've, I've, since I started the project in uh, in the in 1999 and and actually 2001, I had my BFA show. That same week, September 11 happened, and since September 11, till now, you know, war it's always a, a headline in in you know our news. And I always imagine like, would would there be a, a, a time of peace? Right? We we see those. I guess imageries of after World War II where, you know, there's these big headlines of, of, of peace and war ended, Nazi loss and things like that. And but it's 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 an ongoing thing and, and it just I don't know. I don't know how to answer this or even think about it, but it just it's just like living throughout the twentieth century, twenty first century, and maybe because of human nature. <laughs> War will always will be with us, you know, and of course we're trying to, I hope through making art and, and understanding this, that we're trying to get away from it, but it doesn't seem like we're anywhere near peacetime anywhere soon, because there's always war happening throughout the, throughout the, the planet anyway, even though it's even also just war on our climate, right, so which all comes down to killing all of us. <laughs> In the late 2000 aughts, you made a series of work addressing, I think I would say multiple Cambodian histories um, or, or multiple histories within present day Cambodia. I think why Vietnam as interested you as a subject is pretty obvious. Was it a natural to extend those investigations to Cambodia or did you have to think through whether or not you wanted to move west, as it were. Well, you know, during my, through my visit to Southeast Asia, when I started to go to Cambodia and visit the Tulsling Genocide Museum there, I was very taken by the mugshots in the walls of the museum that depicted the people who were killed in the genocide. And, you know, the Khmer Rouge time period kind of grow out of the Vietnam War itself and that connection that how one war leads to another devastation that happened within Southeast Asia. So it was sort of an ascension just to explore that and also to think about photography as a medium for memento mori, you know, just sort of, you know, even in my work about the Vietnam War, the work on in about the Khmer Rouge was about making altars for these victims. 
a place where you know we can go and meditate on the history that happened and the death that resulted and sort of take responsibility within this history you know because you know the Khmer Rouge after the Vietnam War how the Khmer Rouge became powerful as they were to march into Phnom Penh in 1979 was that they got funding from the the U.S. military to fight with the Vietnamese. So within that sort of connection, you know, I could see the extension of our responsibility within that genocide itself. And I wanted to just sort of talk about that within that work. That series of work titled In the Eclipse of Angkor includes pictures of temples that still stand around Siem Reap, pictures of people, individuals who, who were killed in the genocide. There's a picture of a pile of skulls. There are pictures of nature. To me, they're, they're, they're much more emotionally intense than the Vietnam pictures. I mean, to look at piles of skulls and, and pictures of people who we know were killed is a really intense experience. What did that series allow you to do and explore that that maybe you didn't explore with the Vietnam pictures? You know, in, in the in, in the Eclipse of Anchor, um, with that work, I started to use the daguerreotype process and thinking about how daguerreotype as a medium reflects reflects a person looking at it and but also reflects the light that shines on it. So it projects this image out into the gallery space. And I wanted to sort of, again, sort of move away from Corfield prints as a body of work and explore the, the daguerreotype process. And through my research, just learning about Angkor Wat and trying to understand the Khmer regime theories of agrarian society, you know, they wanted to make Cambodia back, back into an agrarian landscape. And they were inspired by the, the Angkor Wat temples. So that for me was sort of like, wow, out of this beauty came this destruction. So I wanted to compare the two. And when I was visiting Angkor Wat, I took a photograph of, of a snake, a carving of a Hindu mythology where a snake named Rahu swallowed the sun, causing an eclipse. And in you know, ancient time, Angkor Wat times, <laughs> you know, an eclipse is, is, an, is an omen, right? It's, uh, you know, the sun disappear for a brief period of time, and it's, it's bad luck. And I was just imagining, well, this, this eclipse, you know, happened in the 19, the late 1970s with the Khmer Rouge in Wei. So, yeah, it was sort of trying to explore that history and making those connections. You know, I think even, even just through the presentation of the work, I'm able to talk about, you know, our responsibility as, an, as Americans, you know, who, who would probably don't think that we're responsible for, for this genocide, but we are through our own government policy. So that was something that I wanted to highlight. You know, I didn't directly talk about it within the work itself but I, something I, I want to highlight when I talk about the work. I'm guessing you had been 
experimenting or playing around with daguerreotype processes before you went to Cambodia? All this processes was all started when I was an undergrad. I started making daguerreotypes really like in, I think in the 1990s, like 98 or so. I So a decade before you went to Cambodia, just to fill Yeah, that. you know, and it takes a while to really understand and get better at the process. But, but in the 1990s, I, you know, I saw my first daguerreotype at an antique shop and I just fell in love with it because I didn't understand what I was looking at. And even my students these days, they don't, they don't understand daguerreotypes when they see it themselves because it's, it's a weird foreign photographic image. It's like it's on a silver plate and it's reflective and it's ghostly and it's highly like really sharp and resolution is so high in a small little object that just fits in the palm of your hand. So just through the attraction of the, the, the material itself, I wanted to explore to see if I can actually do this in the, the, the 21st century to make a daguerreotype. And, you know, those who like to geek out and, and be nerdy about photographic processes, which I'm one of them, you know, cracking the code to make a daguerreotype is not easy. You know, we, it looks like it's easy when we read about it, but it's something that's sort of, again, it's like the process is lost in ways we don't understand it in our times of, in our photographic era right now, so. Well, when you traveled from the United States to Cambodia, you must have had an idea you wanted to use daguerreotypey to make pictures in, in Cambodia and around Anchor and maybe elsewhere in the country too. Why did you think that might be the way you wanted to address the subjects you were going to photograph in Cambodia? I wanted to do a project about the Khmer Rouge, but I didn't want to just, again, use standard paper print processes. And it's all about, you know, just actually the image on a sheet of paper. But the daguerreotype, as I mentioned, is highly reflective. And that's the one, the one, the main reason I still love using this process is because when you look at a daguerreotype, the viewer becomes very conscious of themselves in the photographic scene. They, they see themselves. And when I was thinking about appropriating these photographs on the wall at the Khmer Rouge, I'm sorry, at the Tulsi Genocide Museum, you know, I wanted to invert that so then we also see ourselves within the portrait of these people and like the like the pile of skulls, you know, which are all sort of evidence in the tribunal that's still going on to this day that, you know, we also see our own head within that pile of skull. And, you know, on the larger idea of it, it's just, again, thinking about meditating on, on life and death itself. And of course, in this situation, you know, the, the death is not natural. It's, it, it came through war, you know, wars caused by, by human intervention. So, and in Cambodia, you know, there's the Buddhist philosophies is really a big thing there. So a lot of people for years were thinking that, you know, the Cambodians were thinking, well, the Khmer Rouge, it's, it's like a karma, karma thing, karmic in a way that, you know, it's like we did something wrong in our past. Now we're we have to accept this event that happened, this history. But actually, that's not the really correct way to think about it because, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to put it into word, but it's, it's perversive in ways that 
in, in the understanding of karma, because karma is something that is almost like a natural thing that happened to, that is uncontrollable, you know, if a rock falls on you, and you end your life, a rock falls on you because you can't control that. But I think, you know, war is controllable because it's humans' invention, right? It's a human invention thing, so... So yeah, those ideas were also s- circulating in in that body work for me, and you know, there's still a lot there that I'm just trying to investigate. But it's not something I actually am working on these days with the the Khmer Rouge series. We have been mostly because of me talking about American imperialism without using the words American imperialism. When I think about 19th century photographic processes, I think about how European nations like France and North American nations like the United States used those 19th century photographic processes to extend empire. And of course, I guess most often we think about paper prints that way, but daguerreotypes are part of the story too, certainly. When you began to use daguerreotypes in Cambodia and afterward, was that an idea or a relationship you were interested in I don't know, investigating or engaging? Well, yeah, definitely, because the the architecture in the landscape or in the cityscape, you know, is colonial in ways that we we see them. But it was not something really direct in, you know, when I think about it, even though I know like the French invented, well, Louis Daguerre, <laughs> a Frenchman invented the daguerreotype process, but I wasn't thinking about it as using, you know, one would say, you know, using the master's tool. I was thinking about daguerreotype just because in the 19th century, it was mainly used for portraiture work and became, you know, the bread and butter for for this new profession called photographers. And I've rarely seen landscape daguerreotype. Now, they are landscape daguerreotypes in the 19th century, but they, you know, they're outnumbered by portraiture. So I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, how does a landscape look like in the daguerreotype process? And that actually <laughs> started, which might be surprising if I mention it, it started actually in the South for me in Virginia. <laughs> when I went out there in, oh, I forgot what year, maybe it was 2009, I, I was there in um, Roanoke, Virginia, and, and then also in Lexington, Virginia, as an adjunct teacher, or as a, I also was part of a residency program, but it was was at a, univer, a, a local um, liberal arts college. I was out there for a year, and I wanted to to do some sort of photographic project, and and that was the first time I took the daguerreotype process out of my studio and into the the landscape, because I, I knew that, of course, when I go to the south, I'm going to encounter. Civil Wars um, sites, and I thought, well, what a bit, you know, what would be interesting to photograph Civil War sites using a 19th century process? So daguerreotype became the medium for me to um, to sort of, you know, learn the process. So I, yeah, I visited like cemeteries, like Stonewall Jackson cemeteries, and made these um, Confederate um, monuments on daguerreotypes. You know, I was fascinated with with that history, the Confederate flag, you know, was something I did not encounter living in California. And I wanted to understand Americana and in, in that history of American, of, 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 our, of our history of the Civil War, which I'm not 
you know, previously was not attractive to because it wasn't something that was sort of on my mind. So within that project of exploring the Civil War and coming back to California after that, the California landscape looked really new to me. It looks, it was like, wow, I actually, I actually can now go to Yosemite Valley with this process. And, you know, of course, I'm talking to you, Tyler Green, who, who see that correlation between Yosemite Valley and the Civil War photography. Oh, we're going to get there. Let me tell you. So, so it, it's kind of magical that for me, it sort of work, work out the same way. And, you know, at that time in my life, I wanted to sort of finish um, project about Southeast Asia and wanted to explore just again, you know, this, this land here. Before we leave Southeast Asia for the national parks in the United States, I want to ask about a body of work you made at Pulau Bidong in 2002. Pulau Bidong is an, a now abandoned island off the coast of Malaysia. It is where you and your family live as refugees between living in Vietnam and coming to the United States. There's a picture you made in your Pulau Bidong series, which dates to 2002 visit, and I think you did some printing of the work afterward, called Blurred Memories Sports Section. It's one of five or six pictures in that series where vegetation has overtaken buildings that were there. The land is reclaiming itself. Is there a relationship between those pictures and any of the pictures you made in or around Angkor Wat? I guess the, the relationship is about ruins. Even though the Angkor Wat ruins, is, it's like this magnificent place that is protected and it's a heritage site. The Pula Pidown refugee camp, you know, it is an abandoned site. And, and even today, I think much of it is gone now after even those photographs in 2003. So those materials and those buildings are no longer there. So I think, you know, like any photographer who's photographing in the landscape, it's thinking about preserving the scene in front of the camera. And that was sort of, again, the idea, just preserve that, those structures. And, and again, it was also a, a project for me thinking about, you know, heading into graduate school at that time. I wanted to go into graduate school with a project in mind. And so I thought, about, well, maybe let's, let's, let's think about this. This refugee camp that uh, we spent nine months at. Oh, of course, you know I was a baby, so I didn't didn't have memories of that. But traveling with my mother on that trip was a way for her to to talk about those experiences, and in a way for me and her to bond and and record and and see what we we find on that island. So yeah, it was a sort of an adventure itself in ways that we didn't know what we would find. Other than, um, you know, we hire a fisherman to take us, take us out there on, on his boat and, and was just in awe of what we did discover. We talked a moment ago about American imperialism. And I think one of the common subjects across maybe all of your work is the impacts of American imperialism, not only in Vietnam, but in Cambodia, as we've discussed, even in Malaysia, as we just discussed. Is imperialism part of why you were interested in making pictures of national parks? <laughs> yeah, well, definitely. I mean, Manifest Destiny, 
is sort of part of the development of the National Park. Yeah, I mean, taking over land, it's something that is is within what happened in these places, right? It's it's sort of a struggle over who owns this land, who wants it, the resource, all that is in view in these these bodies of work. So yeah, I mean that's <laughs> imperialism is such a big big topic in in ways that it's hard for me to discuss about it because it's it's so big in way it's so sort of like historical. It's all about like exploration. Well, one of the one of the things I think that your work at sites like White Sands, Manzanar, Yellowstone, Yosemite, Death Valley, on and on. I think one of the ways you 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 make and show the work as as daguerreotypes, often quite large daguerreotypes, is that it offers an opportunity for us in the twenty first century to have a pathway into resetting our relationship with those places and resetting our understandings of those places. And and I, I freely admit that maybe one reason I think that way is because I'm an historian of these places. I wonder if any of that is why you went to them and, and wanted to make daguerreotypes there. Yes, well, definitely. I think there's, there's so many reasons why we do what we do as artists. And for me, I think the beginning of it is just wanting to to finally go to a national park and, and just photograph. I miss making a photographic image in a camera, like the way we we learn as photographic students, right, to take a camera out and and expose imageries on it, you know, and can do this process of in my process of the daguerreotype process. And then through just working on a project, you know, you start to understand the conceptual issue also behind what you're doing. And for me, like I avoided going to national parks and thinking about it as a photographic subject for many years is because those the pictures of the national park sort of paralyzed me, like the those stunning photographs by Ansel Adams. You know, of course, I, I learned about Ansel Adams first before learning about Carlton Watkins. But I felt like there's nothing more one can say about the National Park, you know. And, and of course, you know, growing up and not going camping and the association of the word camp to my with my parents is like refugee camp. And and like, why? <laughs> why put yourself in those elements? Like we, we did that, you know, we we went. We, 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 we survive in, with the elements. So again, I've, I felt like growing up as a, as an Asian kid, I sort of like missed out on these American, you know, these very American pastime of camping. So yeah, I think imperialism, it's, it's imbued in, in some of these thoughts and, you know, like the national park for me, since I was a kid and thinking about it, you know, it's, um, was and maybe still is sort of a white space. The national parks were quite literally constructed as a white space from the word go in 1864. That was the whole point. Yes. And, and like I didn't see myself, well, first in the photographic imageries that I, you know, that I researched and, and looked throughout the archives. And I didn't see Asian bodies. I didn't see myself. It was sort of scary for me to go (laughs) 
I know this sounds kind of ridiculous, but it was sort of frightening to go to the national park in my 20s, you know, or is it my 20s? I don't even know what age I went now doing the math. And But anyway, as an adult, it was sort of scary because I think in general, I'm I'm a shy person and I'm pretty much introverted. And being out in public spaces sometimes is uncomfortable for me. And when you like go through the national, like to get to the national park, in our times, you you have to go through these counties that are sort of conservative in maybe your own politics. And then you have to confront, I use the word confront, but you have to approach a gate and and then there is a national a national park ranger there to assist you to get to the park, but it's someone in a uniform. A, ga- a literal gatekeeper. Yeah, a gatekeeper. <laughs> and once you pass that gate, you get into this like place that you understand like this is like a federal land, you know? You're like you're not part of, you know, you you left that county that you went past through and now you're like there's this, you know, ideology that kind of imbue in in this place, you know, you think about the constitution, you think about life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness and all those themes kind of come boiling up for me. So yeah, I, I do carry all this into the national park, and maybe one shouldn't. But it, it's I don't. I'm not going to let you get away a third time with saying you shouldn't, because I think within the history of photography is the reasons that's completely understandable. When we look at 19th century photography to, related to the national parks, especially, but we see pictures of you know, especially when we get into the 1880s, happy European Americans at sites we now affiliate with or sites that became part of the National Park Service administrative sites. And when we see pictures of Mexican-Americans, Californios in, in the language of the time, or of Asian-Americans, those are not photographs of people recreating in front of, you know, Half Dome. Those are pictures of people constructing, literally physically constructing the means that allow those European-Americans to go to Half Dome or the Grand Canyon. So within... Your reticence is the history, not only of the United States, but the history of the medium from which you've built a career. Yeah, no, you're, you're definitely right about that. I, you know, the, the rare f- pictures I, I f- find of Asian body from that time period of the, you know, the 1840s, you know, were pictures of them working as maybe house servants or laundry mats or, or dynamites in the Sierra. And yeah, those are not the pictures that, I mean, those, those are also sort of like pain, painful pictures to look at. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that both historians of photography and Americanists have a whole lot of work to do around how photography and the camera were used as, as federal tools against Asian Americans across the late 19th and especially in the early 20th century during periods when the federal government acted violently against Japanese and Chinese Americans. I guess speaking of trauma, you have spoken before about and obviously made work about how land in a place such as Vietnam experiences trauma and how you can carry that forward in pictures Yosemite, particularly, in the area around it, was a headline site of the California genocide, the place where the federal government and the state government, California state government, 
first teamed up to enforce the genocide in 1851. When you photographed Yosemite, or maybe even when you photograph it now, if you still do, do you think of it as a site of trauma? I guess I do. But I also think about it as this just this really beautiful scene, I guess. It is the ultimate complicated place. It is. I think, and then that's maybe why I'm tripping over this question, because it's sort of both at the same time for me. And that's probably where the complexity kind of kind of comes into play is sort of holding these, you know, these opposite ideas in your head at the same time. I'm still I'm still photographing the National Park and and I, and I, I think about historical sites, national historical sites a lot in expanding these series. You know, I in the book itself, there's there's pictures of Manzanar and Trinity sites in, in the White Sand Monument in New Mexico. And so I'm, you know, as someone who, who likes to know by history and, you know, just not a, you know, I'm just not a, just thinking about the scenery of a place, the, the natural beauty that's there in front of me. But I want to think about the history too. And, you know, those, the few sort of petroglyphs I've, have photographed in the national parks, you know, allow me to sort of, you know, explore further and, and, and point to these other, almost history on the margin, you know, of, of the national park as a subject, right? These are marginalized history. But of course, I hope throughout making more work about the national park that these history can be more center and more mainstream. And, you know, I believe it will be. I think, that, you know, we are in a moment of reckoning in our in our time here as an American going through the pandemic and Black Lives Matter and racial injustice that still continue on happening. <laughs> so I think it's, you know, these, these things do take time, as we all know. But as we continue to explore it, I think it gives those of us comfort that there would be progress and change to come. When you say there is a a new national willingness to engage with complicated histories and to surface the difficult histories, I want to jump in to say that it will have to be artists and historians that do that work because the National Park Service itself will have to be dragged kicking and screaming and perhaps is being dragged kicking and screaming. How might having made work in Cambodia and Vietnam prepared you to make work in the national parks? Well, it definitely gives me a filter to look through, or, you know, even to say sunglasses to look through when I think about making work about the United States. You know, again, it just allows me just to sort of be critical about, about events and history itself. And, 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 of course, what we are presented today through mainstream history and again, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to think about this if I, you know, if I didn't explore Asian American study when I was in college, because I, that really just opened up my, my eyes and just really allows me to understand that I also have a history that's, you know, that I contribute to, to this place. I have people who look like me contribute to the United States. And as you all, as we all know right now, of course, those histories, Learning and teaching about those history is being attacked in our politics these days. You know, there's there's ban on on you know what people you know what they call critical race theories in states like 
now, I mean, there's this pushback, which is, yeah, it's very frightening. It's, you know, that, that history liberates us, but then, you know, there's those out there who don't want us to know these history because they, they feel like it's shameful. But history is history, and there's nothing shameful about it other than making it shameful. <laughs> it's a sort of understanding, you know, what happened, and, and hopefully, you know, we, we could learn from it. I want to wrap up by asking about a decision you made in the second of the two books in the two books radius set. The, the second book includes a number of family photographs, nothing, you know, nothing artist made, if you will, you know, not, not, not you, the artist, but just family photographs from the 1970s. Why did you publish them? Why did you include them? So the idea of the, the second book, and this is through working with the Radius team, um, when I present them sort of a working manuscript, and the idea was to sort of pull apart sort of like the archive and then the art, the work themselves, you know, the artwork themselves, which is in the first book. So then one could actually read both books at the same time, which I'm not quite sure it's going to happen, but like, you can have one section of the book open, then refer back to the archival material that I that inspired the work. I'm going to jump in just to say it kind of does work that way. I mean, that's how I did it as I was getting ready to talk to you. I mean, I found that in front of me on a desk, I had both open and I was kind of going through the texts and archival stuff in one book and going through the other at the same time and was finding and identifying what it sounds like you wanted people to, to join. Yeah, no, that I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that because this is the first time I'm understanding that this is actually can work and, and is working because uh, this idea, of course, came out of working with Radius. And I thought, you know, it's my first book. So I was like, sure, let's just do two books. <laughs> if you, if, you know, because I, I mean, I'm sure the Radius team have much more knowledge in understanding, you know, crafting a book than, than I do because I'm so used to just a standard photographic book. You know, you sort of flip through it and like, where did these material go? So the family photograph, you know, again, the, so the second book was sort of, in a way, it's almost, well, the whole, I mean, the whole, I feel like, I really think of the, the, the enigma belonging, it's, it's, it's sort of autobiography for me. It's in, you know, through the visual arts, but as ways as through the writings in the second book too. And it was a way for me to also pull in other people's stories and, and lives and experience within all these intersections that, that happened within the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and even today. So there's, you know, the family photograph that, the few family photograph that came in sort of were like evidence of this journey from for myself, you know, and I thought what magical way to do it then put it into a, a picture book, a, a photo album. <laughs> Been done. Thanks very much. Oh, thank you, Tyler. <laughs> the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio, the most extensive exhibition dedicated exclusively to the artist's drawing practice. The exhibition covers the full range of Riley's career, from her student days in the late 1940s through her groundbreaking black-and-white optical works of the early 1960s 
to the innovative color studies she has undertaken from the late 60s to the present day. Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio is co-organized by the Hammer Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Morgan Library and Museum. On view at the Hammer from February 4th through May 28th, 2023. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. On view now at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University, Spirit in the Land, a contemporary art exhibition that examines today's urgent ecological concerns from a cultural perspective. Spirit in the Land demonstrates how intricately our identities and natural environments are intertwined. Through their artwork, 30 artists show us how rooted in the earth our most cherished cultural traditions are, how our relationship to land and water shapes us as individuals and communities. The works reflect the restorative potential of our connection to nature and exemplify how essential both biodiversity and cultural diversity are to our survival. Artists in the exhibition include Wangeshi Mutu, Radcliffe Bailey, Hugh Locke, Stacey Lynn Waddell, and Sheldon Scott. On view through July 9th. Learn more at nasher.duke.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston is proud to announce the opening of the new galleries for Art of the Islamic Worlds. The galleries display the entire MFAH collection of Islamic art, enhanced by the Hussein Afshar collection, an exquisite selection of Persian masterworks. See historic paintings, ceramics, precious metalware, finely woven silk fabrics, and carpets. Learn more at mfah.org slash islamicworlds. Welcome back. Next up, Jeffrey Richmond Mole joins me to discuss Object Lessons in American Art, selections from the Princeton University Art Museum, now at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia. The exhibition features artworks from Princeton that present American history, culture, and society in ways that reveal how Princeton has taught and presented U.S. art history. The exhibition is on view through May 14th. A catalog was published by Princeton. Bookshop and Amazon offer it for about $30 to $40. Jeffrey Richmond Mole, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you. The exhibition from Princeton's collection of American art that is now at the Georgia Museum is titled Object Lessons in American Art. So within that title is a kind of term of art used by art educators. What are object lessons? Well, object lessons, I think, in this show has several meanings. There's the historical notion of object lessons as a form of teaching, particularly elementary age children, the states back in the U.S. to the 19th century with this idea that as children interact with objects in a classroom setting, they learn to reason with, describe, articulate, and respond to the material world around them. And there was this very carefully crafted multi-year process of education that moved from sort of simple description of an object into narration and, and reason. Uh, so I think this general idea that uh, a material thing can provide a tangible example of a larger principle or an abstract idea that guides this show, that that comes out of this pedagogy, this, this history of, of teaching. In the museum setting, I think we also define object lessons in more depth or perhaps slightly differently in, in thinking about the teaching function of material 
objects, of works of art. In object-based research and instruction, particularly at the university level, as well as the object lesson as a kind of practice for curators in the gallery space that that precedes that education. So how how does a curator set up through juxtaposition, sometimes these kind of strikingly incongruous juxtapositions, or through an assemblage of works that highlights relationships or gaps, this approach by curators to to use the objects to speak on behalf of the institution or to use the object to speak really on behalf of the past, this notion that objects are communicative, that they they speak in ways that words cannot. The object lesson is sort of a practice of teaching, but it's also a practice of privileging the object to speak for history, cultures of the of the past and and on behalf of the curator and, and their museum. You have migrated a manifestation of that approach into the galleries in Athens in one of the more thought-provoking installations I've seen in an American, historical American art gallery anyway, in the last few years. And it starts with, the installation starts with two portraits by Henry Inman on loan from the high in Atlanta and a mantle made by a no longer known, you know, a mantle as it would go over like a fireplace, made by a no longer known maker who was active on Cherokee lands in the early 19th century. What are those two Inman pictures? That is, who do they show? And why did you put them together with that mantle in a way that I think might illustrate everything you said in your first answer? (laughs) So the, the Henry Inman portraits that come from the high show... Tempucci Barnard, who was a Yuchi leader, the Yuchi were a group of indigenous peoples in the southeast that eventually became subsumed within the the Creek nation. And and Barnard was a fairly well-known politician and military leader among the Yuchi and the Creeks who advocated strongly on behalf of the sovereignty of Creek lands, interacted frequently with the U.S. government. So a strong representative of that group. Beside him is a portrait of an uh, unidentified Seminole leader. So those are the two Inman portraits that, as you say, hang above this Cherokee mantelpiece from the pre-removal home of a fairly prominent figure in in the Cherokee Nation. These objects were important for me as I was reinstalling our permanent collection galleries to give not only a verbal but a material acknowledgement of the peoples who have ancestral ties to where we are at the University of Georgia in in the southeast. They are three representatives of the so-called five civilized tribes, and it was a way of, of aligning thinking institutionally about you know what what do the works we show reflect upon our own history as a museum as part of the University of Georgia the two portraits and the mantle were a way of saying you know we are guests on this this land and to connect the history of the university in a way to the removal of native peoples because the University of Georgia was was chartered in 1785 we like to say that we are the first 
public institution of higher education in the country, but it took 21 years for us to hold our first class. And in those 21 years, what was happening was the state was the site of border wars where native peoples were trying to protect their lands against the incursion of the state and federal government. And it took those 21 years to establish a number of treaties that usurped native lands so that a university could have a land to occupy. There, was, there, was, <laughs> there wasn't any ground for buildings to be constructed until these, these treaties that took away Creek and Cherokee land. So this kind of material conversation in the galleries, which is the first, it's your main sightline and focal point when you enter our galleries of American art. It was a way of really returning and reseeding space to those original occupants uh, and stewards of the land in Northeast Georgia. The complicating factor in the portraits is that Inman made the two pictures after portraits painted by Charles Bird King. Charles Bird King's probably painted in the 1820s. The Inman's painted in the early to mid-1830s. The reason Inman was making portraits after the King's was because Thomas McKinney, who for 16 years between 1814 and 1830 had been the leading United States government bureaucrat, just for vernacular purposes, say he was in charge of federal policy toward Native Americans, was planning to, and eventually did, make a series of books and portfolios that represented and told particular histories about Native American peoples and individual Native American leaders, all of which is a very long, but I think perhaps necessary way of saying these were European-American authored representations of Native leaders, which gave the European-Americans and indeed the federal government control for decades thereafter over how those Native American leaders would be seen, literally seen, and, and then textually understood. So given all that, which I know you, you know, I'm just outlining for listeners, how do you address that complication of control and agency within a gallery space, or is that work yet to come? Because it's difficult. With these portraits and the mantelpiece that they hang above, I think there are a number of goals here. One is a matter of representation, just on a, on a basic level in a gallery that was previously occupied by portraits of wealthy, white, largely male sitters, giving over space to representation of other individuals, again, political leaders of their time who were having these international diplomatic negotiations between you know, native nations and the US nation. I think that was just an important first step. But just having the portraits is not enough, which is why the mantelpiece is there, fashioned by Cherokee artisans to give a record and a place for their artistic production. And in that case, the really kind of transcultural way of, of how that process of making came to be. I mean, this, this mantelpiece was influenced by Moravian missionaries who were from North Carolina, who were teaching these wood carving and tracery techniques to Cherokee peoples. And so I think the important thing with the mantelpiece in conversation with the portraits is to show a much richer 
world of boundary crossing and of, of negotiation and interaction that adds to and complicates some of the simplified stories we have about native diplomacy and an eventual removal in the South. So I think the objects in concert with one another and I think getting sort of to the larger goal of what an object lesson can do and particular examples of, of what those look like, it's this merging of media of the kind of categories that we've set out for the arts, for what is collected by museums, where we typically separate decorative arts objects and so-called fine art. In doing that, we are erasing or removing the contributions of certain groups who might have only produced in what we've come to define as decorative arts categories, removing them from a conversation with the privileged status that is inherent to the production of fine arts. So in other words, when we separate fine art and decorative art, we're also separating different groups of people who, based on class, race, and other identity markers, might not have historically been able to be part of the conversation of painting and sculpture. So those the object lesson is a way of kind of troubling the hierarchies that we set up within the museum and within art history. That's what this particular example in our galleries is also trying to do. It's a marvelous example of how a spectacular amount of complication can exist in three objects, which I think is valuable and exciting and and I'd like to see a heck of a lot more of it in a heck of a lot more places. One of the things you note in your catalog essay is that installations are most effective when the hand of the curator is invisible, which points to a certain old old school and, and maybe particularly Ivy League elegance. How do you do that when you have a picture such as John Singleton Copley's portrait of Elkanah Watson, a picture that features within it a representation of the motivating ideology of racialized Anglo-Saxonism, you know, an an ideology that was everything to the construction of the American nation in the 18th and 19th centuries, but which I think most 21st century viewers are unlikely to recognize as as being present in that picture. Well, what I think object lessons do is they, they not only make us aware of new stories and challenge the way that we understand history, but they also help us as, you know, I, I say in the gallery because I, I felt like I needed to give a, a definition of, of an object lesson, how they work, that object lessons also force us to mind the gaps and read between the lines. And I think in the case of a Copley portrait where we're dealing with whiteness, we're dealing with these various issues around race and gender, that these, you know, global economies like like the economy of slavery, that the object lesson also points to what we typically don't catch on to. Those kind of assumptions that are not only embedded within works of art, but that works of art uphold and and reaffirm. And so in the, the case of a portrait by Copley, you're you're sort of having to in a way state the obvious, but in a way that also makes us realize that the assumptions behind the obvious are in fact very <laughs> I took a you know, many years of 
reification of emphasis and construction. And that's hard when you're a museum curator trying to help people see what they might not be able to physically see, if that makes sense. This is what you know, Martin Berger's book on sight unseen and thinking about how visual evidence sometimes is used to, you know, to obscure and to hide and that we actually can't always trust what we see. But in the case of the Elkanah Watson painting, there are various aspects of, of the picture itself that kind of give us these clues, especially if we think about who Watson was. He was he was Irish. He was employed or really indentured to John Brown of the famous you know, Rhode Island Brown family, becomes entangled as a result in the transatlantic slave trade. And there's this brilliant reading of the painting by Kirsten Buick in the Object Lessons catalog that talks about how when we when we think about Watson alongside Copley, we see that in both the case of the artist and the sitter, both are seeking out this kind of construction of a new identity. Watson trading his Irishness for Britishness, just as Copley is trying to trade his Americanness for Britishness. So read as kind of a full product, a fuller story, we can see that that painting is all about identity construction. Even though, you know, we see the flag flying on the ship in the background and it, it's, it's painted as sort of familiar style of aristocratic portraiture that becomes so common in, in this genre. It is a painting about the fabrication of a white and British identity for both the artist and the, the person commissioning the, the portrait. For me, the background is the whole painting. I mean, for, um, in, in the background, on in the distant right behind Watson, there is a setting sun and merchant ships advancing toward it. And for me, that's very much construction torn from 100 years, hundreds of years of European ideology about European civilization, about civilization and then European civilization being expanded and extended to the setting sun, which by 1782, when Copley makes the painting, is all about Anglo-Saxonism and Anglo-Saxonist constructions of civilization and white supremacy. There's the famous poem that George Berkeley writes in 1726, effectively prophesying that Anglo-Saxons, British people, will extend Anglo-Saxon civilization through the Americas. And so not only is Copley painting British mercantilism extending toward the setting sun in the background of the Watson portrait, but Watson himself is illuminated by that setting sun. It is the extraordinarily rare portrait in which the source of illumination does not come from where the viewer is standing, but comes from the back of the painting. The Caravagist, what we would now call the Caravagist effect on Watson's face comes from behind forward rather than from forward to back. It is a... It's a really remarkable picture. We'll have an image of it on uh, manpodcast.com, of course. And you mentioned those ships moving westward, one of which, as, as I said, flies an American flag. There's this mythology around the story of Watson and Copley's portrait that this commemorates the, the event when the British finally recognized American independence and that this was supposedly the first American flag flown just off of British shores and in British waters. And so this particular painting is the handing off of British Empire to American Empire. 
as that American flag flying ship sets off towards the West. Is Watson wearing red, white, and blue? Well, certainly there's the red coat and the white shirt and the the curtains surrounding him that are billowing around the columns have this blue tone to them. So they, the, the painting is is that red, white, and blue palette echoing the flag, but also echoing the Union Jack colors, which not knowing British history well enough to know when that first blew. But that's also part of this kind of transition and inheritance, as I said, of you know British empire moving to the American project of empire. Fascinating. I mean, yeah, don't miss the painting on manpodcast.com. I'm, um, I'm going to see it for myself a couple of weeks after we tape this, and I can't wait. The exhibition not only addresses questions of empire, whether British or American, but it and you in your catalog essay address questions of things as seemingly, I don't know if innocuous is the word, but as, as, as seemingly innocuous as still life paintings, such as of berries. How might some of these ideas we're talking about, particularly around object-based teaching and learning and viewing, be extended to three really quite delightful still life pictures in the show? Well, I think the premise of the object lesson, the premise of the larger exhibition is thinking about how meanings of various kinds and the, you know, the, the cultural values and assumptions that determine meaning change throughout time and throughout context as a function of the people who commissioned a painting versus those who have viewed them in their various spaces of display. And so if objects can take abstractions like the idea of empire, the idea of race, and make them fixed and concrete, how, for example, in the case of what is in the history of art considered the lowest of genres, the still life painting, how can how can those sorts of abstractions be rooted and reaffirmed within, particularly around the theme of the environment and environmental attitudes? How are those fixed within works of art? And so you said innocuous. I don't whether it's sort of innocuous is the worst word I've ever used. I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the the humble object, the unassuming yeah, that's object. That's much better. I think that is just as good a place to look as as any other. You brought up some of the examples in the show, namely there's a Rubens Peel in the show, typical of the Peel family in the way that they give rise to this genre of, of neoclassical portraiture. You have this fruit still life on a tabletop. Beside that, a beautiful Severin Rosen still life. I brought into this conversation in my essay, as you mentioned, a Charles Ethan Porter still life of strawberries which is in your collection we should add that's right it's in the georgia museum of art collection how can we look at over the course of even just the 19th century how slight changes in the approach to still life painting might help us unfold something about the environmental attitudes of this period and and the shifts that we might see across each picture so the case of rosen i think there's a clear change from the Peel family's thinking about nature in light of, you know, the Peel Museum, this kind of ordered Linnaean structure of the natural world and these systems of 
animals and plants and their habitats as reflected in the dioramas that appear throughout the famous long room of the Peel Museum. What Rosen brings us is less this kind of preservation of a ecological system that structured the Peel's vision of nature and more a reflection of the incursion of industry on the natural world. Rosen was painting for a significant amount of time, painting for industrialists in the timber trade in central Pennsylvania. And so in pictures like the one in Princeton's collection or the famous painting called The Abundance of Nature in the Virginia MFA's collection, you have Rosen trying to construct this superabundant picture of the natural world where fruit overflows off the tabletops. The vines that have been cut and arrayed across the composition seem to continue to grow and creep. Some of Rosen's still lifes feature the famous Dutch iconography of, of a bird's nest with eggs. And so the fecundity of the natural world is, for Rosen, important to communicate through these pictures because the, the industrialists who were deforesting Pennsylvania depended on an abundant natural world to preserve their industries and therefore their wealth. So, you know, I think we can come to see the, the impact of industrialization on the American environment in, in Rosen. And then even perhaps more subtly, but powerfully, with Porter's Still Ice of Strawberries, his berries often appear in these, these baskets that demonstrate an economy for fruit and other produce. These are baskets that were created to standardize and quantify fruit for the marketplace by, by standard weight and volume. And, you know, it's interesting, too, thinking about Porter because he painted so many strawberry still lifes that they themselves become standardized and economized, right? So, so this, is, this is kind of another way of looking at this incursion and extraction of nature for an American consumer world uh, and also within the world of foodstuffs and, and those, those kinds of commodities. And by extension, this kind of commodification of painting for Porter's audiences and his, his patrons. Rosen is also painting his tabletop still life as sitting on a marble tabletop. Porter's strawberries are sitting in front of strawberry plants on the ground um, with stems and such, a, a pointer to where they come from and the labor required to move them to the market you, you described. Jeffrey Richmond Mole, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.